This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be asking whether we're entering a new era of economic uncertainty, we'll be exploring how today's sexual politics are damaging young men, and we'll be reflecting on the life and legacy of Noel Coward. First up, in her cover piece for the magazine, our economics editor Kate Andrews looks back over a week of economic turbulence and asks whether we should be worried. She joins us now alongside The Economist and former Trusketeer Julian Jessup. Kate, the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank has spooked the markets this week. What happened? Sure. So there's been a a mini regional banking crisis in America as it became clear that Silicon Valley Bank, which is used by a lot of tech companies and and tech investors, was heavily tied into government bonds. And as interest rates have been rising, the value of those bonds has been falling and there were jitters and there was eventually run on the bank. It's led to its collapse. It's quite notable that Silicon Valley Bank was actually hedging its bets against in, uh, interest rate rises and, and abandoned a lot of that last year. So I, I think there's been some irresponsible behavior there. But what we look at at the magazine this week is, you know, what's what's really causing this. And I go back to a, it's the week of the budget, and uh, I go back to a budget a few years ago to start to explain it um, in March 2021 when, when Rishi Sunak was still chancellor. He was preparing his March budget then, not based on any particular policy idea, not even really based on COVID recovery, but rather his deep fear that we could see an increase to the headline rate of inflation and then to interest rates, which he didn't think the public finances could handle. Now, at that time, he was preparing for, say, a 1% rise across the board. The base rate uh, in the UK is now at 4%. Inflation is obviously in, in double digits, as we've all been experiencing. And it turns out that this assumption that was made after the financial crash, that rates would stay so low for so long and essentially would never budge again, just, you know, hasn't hasn't proven correct. So then Chancellor Sunak was really on to something. But it's thought that, you know, we have, we have not begun to felt the full ramifications of what are now actually very normal levels of interest rates historically, and that there are a lot of landmines underneath the UK economy that we could potentially step on, and and we don't know where those are. Although Julian, um, in his sidebar this week, talks about what some of those areas might be. Well, Julian, I was going to ask you about that. As Kate says, you talk about what might be next, and and you, you do mention Credit Suisse, which has obviously been in the headlines recently. Can you take us through what's been happening there, and also how significant it might be if Credit Suisse become more difficult to deal with? Yes, well, Credit Suisse is, is interesting and important because rumours have been swirling around it actually for, for many years. The bottom line is it's been a really badly run bank. It has all sorts of governance issues. Uh, you can name pretty much any scandal in the banking sector over the last five to 10 years and Credit Suisse has been involved in, in one way or another. So um, it was an obvious victim if there was going to be a crisis of confidence. You, know, you look at the, the weakest players in the market and those are the ones that, that suffer the most. I think the danger here, though, is that you can always find excuses for 
individual events. So, for example, I've, I've heard it suggested also that you know, Silicon Valley Bank was an outlier because it was you know, heavily concentrated in the tech sector and had this unfortunately large bet on uh, on US government bonds and that other banks are going to be fine. But there comes a point where you've had two or three of these shocks. We had, of course, last year also the so-called liability-driven investment crisis in the UK pension fund industry. So we, we're already starting to see a series of these shocks. And as Kate explained, the, the bottom line here, or the big picture, is that lots of um, institutions, you know, investors, households, businesses have got used to very low interest rates, and they've they've got complacent. So, you know, when we do see a, a rapid increase in in interest rates, there's a you know a rush to the exit. Lots of people potentially make quite big losses. And even if you could look at individual cases and say this is the exception, I suspect that we will get a lot more of them over the over the coming weeks and months. Um, not least because we haven't even yet felt the full effect of high interest rates on the real economy, let alone in the in the banking system. It does take a while for increases in interest rates and a, a tightening in financial conditions to feed through to the real economy. So it may still be that. You know, some businesses are, are going to fail over the rest of the year. The housing market looks vulnerable. So even outside the financial sector, there are potentially some big problems still to come. Okay, do you agree with, with that analysis that actually um, there's a sort of great comeuppance that might be coming our way? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, it is gloomy indeed. But Julian in his piece also looks at other areas like commercial property and the housing market. And, you know, you can see that that there are trends there that are, are really worrying for this trajectory of the UK economy. And I think what's I think what's particularly unforgivable is that, you know, how how many people called this wrong over such a long period of time and i'm talking about the, you know the big decision makers when it comes to the central banks when it comes to politicians i think there was this very comfortable consensus that somehow the old economic rules were for whatever reason behind us and that this new era has set in where you could just have access to cheap money without any kind of consequence and what I find particularly shocking, if, if you look at, as Julie mentioned, the, the LDI crisis last year, which was, in my opinion, you know, kind of the start of this, Silicon Valley Bank is another example in this narrative. The House of Lords report published last month, looking at those LDIs, points out, you know, they, they were heavily regulated and they were constantly being assessed. And the broad opinion there, the consensus was that they were safe because as the, as the House of Lords report flags, they did not think it was plausible that you would see an interest rate hike of even 3%. They, they, were, not, they were not calculating this. They were not stress testing this. That is hugely worrying that this assumption has set in that not just would rates stay low, they would stay ultra low. And so there was no wiggle room whatsoever if something came along that gave the system a bit of a shock for these LDIs to be stable. And I think the key here, and you know, Julian does start to look at areas, he points out areas we should be looking at, but the hard truth is that we simply may not know where the next crisis is going to be because we just don't know the decisions that have been made now for five, 10 years as interest rates have been as low as they have been. Julian, Kate in her piece points out that obviously it's the done thing now to blame all of this on Liz Truss and her mini budget. How much do you think she is actually to blame? Oh, I, I'd say not at all. Um, what we've seen over the last year, um, particularly over the last six months, is a, is a very big increase in, in interest rates in all of the world's major economies. In the US, for example, the, the housing market there has been hit just as hard as the housing market here. 
by increases in, in mortgage interest rates. So while I'm not going to defend some of the details of the of the mini budget, I think if you know the, the mini budget hadn't triggered the, the LDI problem in the pension fund market and then the government bond market in the UK, something else probably would have done anyway. The key point is that this is very much a, a global phenomenon, or at least you know, amongst all the, the major advanced economies. And so if, if I were looking for something to, to worry about, I'd actually start really big and to look at some of the big governments that have very large amounts of debt, like Italy and Japan, or even some of the, the big central banks who, you know, having bought all these government bonds over the last few years, are now potentially sitting on quite big losses on them and higher funding costs because short-term interest rates have, have risen. So um, there's a potential to start at the very top here in terms of some major governments and, and central banks having problems. Uh, but at the other end, you've got all sorts of potentially smaller players, for example, you know, UK firms that uh, might have been very reliant on COVID support schemes over the last few years and now coming off those schemes and suddenly find that interest rates are much higher and, and banks are, are much more cautious. So it, it might hit anywhere from the, the very top level to the very bottom level or, or, or anywhere in between. It's the nature of these crises that you never know who's really vulnerable until the, the tide goes out. Well, Kate, I'd like to, to move on to talk about this week's budget now, because you know, the budget was accompanied by some perhaps surprisingly optimistic forecasts from the OBR, um, suggesting that we will, in fact, avoid a technical recession and that inflation will drop to below 3% by the end of the year. Is the picture looking brighter for the UK or is there just a sort of irony that just as the OBR is getting more optimistic, there suddenly is this greater global economic turbulence? Uh, well, I think both are true. So um, the forecasts are certainly rosier than they were last autumn, but it is very possible. And, and you know, we've learned this the hard way over the past few years. It's, it's very possible for something to come along that you don't see coming, that you don't expect to totally throw things off course. You know, we, we now look after this year to be averaging around 2% growth for the next three to four years. Is that as much as the UK needs to really recover from the COVID crisis and to really get the economy going? I, you know, I would say it's still pretty lackluster, but it's a lot better than where we were before. The OBR's projections about inflation are really optimistic, the most optimistic I've seen. The idea that we're going to be back down to something close to the Bank of England's target by the end of the year, just below 3% inflation, is very ambitious indeed. And as I understand it, you know, they think that's primarily going to be driven by the falling price of energy. But you're also going to need to see other changes, you know, to the labor market, um, really right across the economy to get down to that level. So that's that's very ambitious. The question in this budget is to what extent people really feel that, um, because the OBR also makes clear that we're expected to have a, a real fall in, in living standards by close to 6% between last year and this year. So while it's great news that we're going to avoid a technical recession, it's very good news that the economy looks set to grow from next year. A lot of people are going to feel worse off. And uh, it's politically tricky territory as well as economic tricky territory. And Julian, just finally, what, what did you make of the budget? Uh well, I thought it was okay. I'm not hugely enthusiastic about it. I think in, in most areas, at least, it didn't make anything worse, which I always think is the you know the first hurdle that any chancellor should to try and clear. I think the OBR forecasts actually, my, personally, I thought were, were quite reasonable, including the prospect of a very big fall in headline inflation because of uh, lower commodity prices and and also the the knock on effects of all the monetary and financial tightening from from last year. Um, I think the problem for central banks is that underlying inflation might remain higher for longer. So that gives them a, 
a big dilemma when they decide how to respond to the banking crisis. You know, do they do they prioritize monetary stability, which is about getting inflation down, or are they willing to pause on interest rates in order to secure financial stability? I think that might be a slightly easier job actually in the UK than it is in other countries, because I think our inflation falls will be particularly marked. So at least that provides one positive backdrop for the Chancellor. But I'm not sure that he did anything more than this sort of usual you know, technocratic competent stuff, you know, fiddling around a bit with pensions, for example, and fiddling around with investment allowances. But there wasn't anything really big and and bold in that. And there does seem to be an overall overall perception that whatever the problem is, the main solution to it should just be to throw enormous amounts of taxpayers' money at it. You know, childcare, of course, being the, the prime example of that. So I I, I accept it was, you know, a competent budget uh, I think the markets would have responded to it more positively had it not been for their concerns about the banking crisis. But it did lack a bit of ambition and it still seemed to be pretty heavy on high spend and as a result, high tax. Thank you, Kate and Julian. Next up, in his piece for the magazine this week, The Spectator's deputy features editor Gus Carter says that the culture of toxic masculinity has gone too far and that young men are being marginalised in schools and online as they're repeatedly told that they are a danger to women. Gus joins me now alongside The Times columnist Hugo Rifkind. Gus, you start in your piece by quoting a YouGov poll which found that only 8% of people have a positive view of men in their 20s. What do you think that tells us? Well, I think it's because men are obviously trash, right? I mean, what are we good for? We're all potential rapists. We're definitely extremely aggressive and can't control ourselves and frankly can't be trusted. Or at least I think that's the kind of prevailing view well maybe not prevailing but at least it's a it's a view that's kind of come into fashion in the in the last few years and i think i think it's come from a quite understandable place in a way which is that i think with things like me too with things like everyone's invited people are more aware of you know issues around uh, male treatment of women and that kind of thing uh, you know and the, and and the fact that men do have the potential to behave terribly but what's happened is that it's kind of expanded out and it and and you've ended up with kind of all men treated as though they're somehow kind of potentially deviant potentially dangerous and the outcome i think is is kind of young boys who who feel kind of confused and a bit scared and they end up down kind of weird crazy right-wing rabbit holes and hugo what do you make of gus's argument do you Agree with the idea that young men are being victimised? I mean, up to a point, I think um, I don't know, I'm really wary of ending up in a situation where we think this is this is anything to do with sort of improving prospects for women, and then there's a cost paid in men. Women aren't doing great either. Mm. You know, you look at. I mean, I, I always when I think of the sort of when I think of men being seduced by nasty right wing stuff online, so the sort of the Andrew Tate phenomenon, which I'm sure we'll talk about. There's this pretty direct counterpoint there with women, which is self harm, which is eating disorders, which are both rocketing. I think both are responses to the same sort of thing, which is a. Uh, it's just we've just created a world in which it's not very nice to be a kid. I totally agree with that, and I agree that it's not about pitting men and women against each other. Uh, in fact, I'm kind of made sure in the piece, I just don't think it that it's somehow the fault of women or even kind of, you know, feminism. I think it's more, uh, I think it's more kind of safetyism in a way. People are, people are scared of things going wrong, especially around children. I mean, there's such a, a, a kind of culture of safeguarding. I mean, one of the, one of the examples I use in the piece is of a school uh, in Essex, where they ban children from having any romantic relationships, mm. from even touching each other, from simple things like hugs. You know, you're going to end up having a, a, a kind of, 
you know, the children are going to end up suffering because of that. And the girls as well. I mean, one of the people I spoke to was a child psychologist called Julie Lynn Evans. And she made this point perfectly. She said, look, the girls want boyfriends too. I mean, they're suffering from this in a way... You know, it's you know, sort of in a similar way to the to the boys. I think it just breeds a kind of a kind of resentment and an unhappiness, and it's and it's just it's just not necessary. It doesn't recognise the nuances of of human relationships. But I, I mean, yes, of course, and 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 I thought your piece was was fantastic. But I'm I'm not sure that the kind of the sort of crisis in masculinity that you start with that, that we're talking about. I'm not sure that's a result of what's happening in schools, what's being said to men about how they ought to behave officially by any sort of blob. I think it's almost like the opposite of that, I think, because we live in such a sort of a, a sexualized culture. To go back to what I was saying about what's happening with girls and young women before, they're exposed to this extremely uh, sexualized culture that exists on Instagram, online, even through porn, through whatever. It's very, very pervasive. It affects how girls feel about themselves, what they, how they can imagine themselves, how they can imagine their futures, and it affects how they behave and all that kind of stuff. The same sort of thing is happening to men. And so I'm really wary of... Not that I'm suggesting you're doing this, but I'm really wary of getting to a point where we're saying what's wrong with men is that men are being demasculinized. They're being told that they need to be a sort of sexless Greta Thunberg type figure, even if they're a man. Mm. Actually, I think it's almost the opposite of that. Men are being told they need to have a girlfriend who looks like Kim Kardashian. And they're trying to find a way in which to, to even identify in that space. And that's what lures them into toxic stuff. Because, precisely as you say, there aren't really the other outlets mm. for that kind of sentiment, that kind of, that kind of life model. I mean, I certainly don't think that, that um, what's happening in schools and concepts of toxic masculinity and that kind of thing are the only cause of, of mm. kind of listless young men. But it's certainly part of it. I think, it's, I think there's, there's, a kind of, there's a kind of intellectual element to it which is being foisted on on young men but i but i also agree with your point about being in a kind of sexualized culture i mean i mean there's this really weird there's this really weird kind of polarity almost where you have on the one hand like a, a kind of hypersexualized culture in which you know as you were saying there's like lots of porn and kind of celebrities are uh, getting their kit off and all that kind of thing and then on the other you have a you have an extremely kind of rigorous and controlling set of kind of sexual morals in a way that are that are just kind of a lot more restrictive than it would have been even even 10 years ago you know i mentioned in the piece these adverts on the tube that say you know unwanted staring is a form of is a form mm. of sexual harassment i mean it's not nice but i think it's i don't think you can quite call it harassment i mean unless it's a unless it's a kind of really extreme circumstance so yeah i think i think there's that kind of odd duality of this kind of ever more restrictive sexual morals and on the other hand a, a very kind of sexualized culture because i mean you talk in your piece about the young men moving away from progressive politics and say they have been for the last few years but but isn't it the case that young boys and younger men always want to rebel and, and the andrew tate stuff feeds into that and this is all just a kind of new form of rebellion i totally agree with that of course i mean when when you know it j- just look at teenage boys if you want to know what the what the prevailing kind of culture is because they'll be they'll be acting out against it you know i think that's i think that's inevitable i think hugo probably knows a bit more about this i mean you've met andrew tate haven't you yes yes i spent a few hours with him in his insane compound in um, not the compound he's in now because that's a prison the one he was in beforehand <laughs> in, uh, in 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 budapest and it was i mean it was a uh, it was fascinating i mean all we really did was sort of argue about about gender and, and misogyny for for quite a few hours i mean what's sort of interesting about his position is maybe too, too strong a way of putting it how needy it is how uh, i mean i mean but genuinely how um 
how like he, he from his perspective although he's all about dominating women and owning women and all that kind of stuff there's something very competitive there there's something about how he sees this sort of sexualized culture that he's in and he's desperate to own it and he feels like he's he's not a man if if he if he doesn't yeah, own it and so, so it really comes out of a i mean it it's very easy to say this about a kickboxer who's currently in jail and not sitting in the room, but it so obviously <laughs> comes out of a position of insecurity, you yeah. know, that, um, that, uh, that I don't think is quite recognised often enough. Totally agree with that. I mean, it does just seem just kind of totally adolescent in its outlook. Mm. Um, I mean, he, he, I mean he, 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 we were talking at one point about, um, he, was, he was talking about how girls were the gate, what's an incredibly creepy phrase, gatekeepers to the sexual marketplace. And I was like, that's a weird and upsetting phrase, and what, what do you mean? And, he's going, and he was going, well, when you're in the club, this happens, and when you're in the club, this happens. And I was like, what are you talking about when you're in the club? You're 38. Grow up. You know, what about when you're in the office? You know, and he's just, there's no, there's nothing beyond that kind of sort of adolescent picture of Pamela Anderson on your wall type thing. But do you not think we kind of, we almost trap people in adolescence you know, we trap young boys in, in adolescence. If we do things like that school in Essex where we say you, you can't have relationships, there is no way in which we can see you having relationships that are, that are healthy and happy. I think people have to, have to make mistakes and that's not an excuse for, for you know, mm-hmm. genuinely malicious behaviour. But people need to be given the space to, to make mistakes. And when they don't, they end up as kind of oversized adolescents, I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, adolescence is supposed to be adolescence, obviously. But um, and in that school in Essex, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like nonsense, but it also sounds in a way quite romantic. It's like every every snog behind the bike sheds is suddenly <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, you know. I don't know, but yeah, no, fair enough. So, so Gus, Gus, in terms of what you would sort of like to see to help young men if if they are in a bind, there's obviously factors that are sort of <laughs> genie out the bottle territory now, you know, like online pornography or anything else like that. But would you just like to see less top-down interference from the school like that school in Essex where they 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 aren't imposing very restrictive ideas about teenage behavior on the pupils well I kind of specifically didn't get into that in the piece because I thought I thought it's kind of it's easier to describe the problem than it is to to try and solve it and I think if I did try and kind of sketch out what I think a solution would be I'd end up sounding like a very boring middle-aged man saying it's very important boys go out and play football regularly and have you know like all of that kind of thing. So yeah, I think I think I was more just trying to to kind of describe a kind of social shift that that I've seen and kind of speak to people who've witnessed it firsthand. Yeah, I I mean it's such a difficult topic. I don't know. What do you think, Hugo? Well, I think we have a long-running problem in kind of Western society generally about how we find role models for men that everyone's okay with, which goes quite into some quite deep, dark places of masculinity that we prefer to pretend aren't there. I remember like a, quite a long time ago, my, my friend Catelyn Moran, when she wrote uh, How to Be a Woman, we discussed, we've discussed a lot, her and I, since then, about why there wasn't and why there hasn't really been a proper kind of how to be a man type equivalent. I mean, she's actually writing one at the moment, and that's, of course, from, from her perspective. But at the time, I said, look, you know what? That model of a kind of guide to how to be a man, I'm afraid that does exist, and it's a book called The Game by a guy called Neil Strauss. And it's a pickup artist manual. And it sounds a bit like perverse to say that on the one hand, you've got this sort of Bible of feminism that's incredibly positive. On the other hand, this really reductive sexist manual about how a man can sort of dominate an own woman. But it actually, 
I mean, it's sort of almost ticking the same kind of boxes in that way that it's offering a set of guidelines for how to behave as a man in the world. And, I, and I'd love to think that there is a more progressive way of finding a way to, to, to give guidelines for how a man can behave in the world. Indeed, there have been some, and, and Rob Webb wrote one mm. uh, that, was very, that, was, that was very good as well. But that's, that works. I mean, you know, it's very easy to tell an already progressive man how to be a more progressive man. It's <laughs> quite hard to find a way to get really down, sort of down and dirty into the guy, the guy who likes football, the guy who likes fighting, the guy who likes war films, the guy who likes porn, and says, this is how you operate still being you in the world. I, I don't know how to do that. I, I, do think, I do think part of the problem and part of the reason for the kind of, you know, part of the reason that take kind of surface to general culture is that when there were male role models, people like Jordan Peterson, people like Joe Rogan, they were kind of shot down almost immediately and treated as though they were extremists, rather than perhaps just, you know, certainly in the case of Peterson, someone who's a social conservative, who who has a kind of prescriptive view of, of the world. He's certainly not dangerous in the way that Tate is is dangerous. Um, no, I mean, well, no, but that's because Tate is extremely dangerous. You know, that's, I mean, that, that, that's because I mean, I mean, Tate is a is a, a misogynist fundamentalist. And, yeah. You know, he's a his um his worldview is explicitly violent and frankly rapey. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, that that that's a problem. I mean, Jordan Peterson, I, I don't know. It's like it's not it's not my fault. Jordan Peterson's preposterous. You know, that's his fault. His vision of gender roles is extremely prescriptive, and you can understand why. You can understand why that bothers people, and when someone well, when someone comes out in the world and says you should be behaving like this, it's fair enough for people to say no, I shouldn't. So two things: I do agree that that he is a slightly absurd character, rocking up wearing kind of very strange suits and, mm. and crying on broadcast. And I mean, the guy seems to be having some kind of kind of protracted mental breakdown involving raw beef. Yeah, uh, but I think he's more. I think he's more trying to kind of sketch out. I think it's actually far more descriptive than it is prescriptive, especially when it comes to the gender stuff. Certainly, if you go and look at uh, look at his ten or twelve rules for life, or however many he's he's managed to come up with, I think it's kind of clearly talking to just blokes, just young men, mm. and there's kind of less of the. There's kind of less of the objectionable stuff about about kind of descriptions of of women and how the two kind of sides interact. But I think the point is, is I think someone like Peterson can exist in a kind of considered conversation, and, yeah. the, and the response okay. was a kind of was a kind of fury at this at this man that was coming out and saying things that you know even kind of. Twenty years ago, were just kind of taken for granted, you know. But that, but that's not. Um, I mean, that's no. Not, I know that's not a that's not a defense. No, no, but it's also not unique to to discussions of you know how to behave of, in varying sexes and genders. That's that's just discourse mm. these days. You know, every 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 position is is caricatured in in the in the extreme. So I think, um, yeah, I I I, I agree that the, there have been voices more moderate than Tate who have been demonised. Mm. But I don't think that. I mean, I think if there had been that voice there that really solved all these problems we wouldn't be having this conversation yeah i mean i mean why do you think it isn't robert webb who's doing youtube videos that young men are like god i'm so i'm so on board with everything he says about the, the kind of the guilt of being a man and 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 that kind of thing because he does seem like quite a guilt-ridden yeah. individual oh sure but i mean his his position i mean as the book says him himself and as as robert rob would say and i love rob dearly but he's he's not he's not a terribly typical man you know he's mm. a he's he, he's an actor his his uh, teenage experiences were explicitly bisexual mm. you know he's um he's he's never been that sort of football lad and nor is he trying to be yeah uh, and so i don't quite think that's um that's what he's tilting at okay Thank you, Gus and Hugo. And finally, 
In the book section of the magazine, Philip Henshaw reviews Oliver Soden's new biography of the actor, writer, singer Noel Coward. Oliver joins us now, along with the Spectator contributor Alexander Larman. Oliver, could you start by telling our listeners why you wanted to write this biography? Well, I have to be honest, I really do, which is that I knew very, very little about Noel Coward before I started to write the biography. And it was made known to me that the Coward estate and archive, which is one and the same thing, were going to release new papers and had put together his unexpurgated diaries, which had never been seen and so on. So he was suggested to me as a subject. And now the book is written and finished, I can be completely honest and say how very wrong I was about Coward at the beginning and how long it took me to get into him. And I, I sat there for about a year thinking that I'd made a terrible mistake in saying yes to this book and that Coward was passé and not for me and I should be writing about a lovely little absurdist playwright who wrote left-wing plays in a Paris attic or something. And then I did what I should have done right at the beginning, which was actually to sit down and read the work rather than think about everything I thought I knew about him. And... I was so astonished by the quality of the plays themselves, by what he actually wrote rather than what we think he wrote, by the work rather than by the idea of him. And then I was away flying, but I, I do have to say that it took me a long time and there was an awful lot of dead wood to be cleared away, which was my own misconception. Mm. But that in itself was a reason to write the book. If you... and, and what is that misconception, do you think? Is it this idea of sort of quaintness to his writing that... Or what's, uh, what do people get wrong, including you're the including past me. version of you? Yeah. Well, I think it's that fundamental rule in writing history of trying to work out how new it must have seemed then, that that is the key to what was actually a very radical voice in the 1920s. Whereas now there's this idea that it's slightly passé, that it's buried in its time, that it doesn't have anything to say to us, that it isn't necessarily of interest because we all think we know what, it, what it's like. And if you can work out what it was like to see a Noel Coward play for the very first time, then I think you get the sense of just how shocking it must have been. But that's quite a tricky and virtuosic mental task to undertake. And Alexander, I understand from a piece that you wrote in The Critic fairly recently that you too were considering writing a biography of, of Noel Coward. What areas of his life do you think remain relatively unexplored? Well, when I was thinking about writing a biography of Noel Coward, which the Noel Coward estate turned down my proposal on the grounds it would be too sensational from the author of books about Lord Byron and Lord Rochester, because obviously Noel Coward was not a drug-crazed libertine, which is a pity, because <laughs> if, he, if, if he had been, I think that his life would have been a much more fun one. But what I wanted to concentrate on, and I think Oliver has done this infinitely better than I could have ever begun to think about doing it, was to explore the division between the private man, who I think were only just getting to grips with now, and the public man who rejoiced in the appellation of the master. And everybody has their idea of this very clipped figure who's always speaking in this very clipped, very witty way. And that is such a cliche now that I think that most people, when they think of Coward, they think of him as somebody who was this rather ephemeral figure. But I think what Oliver has done so beautifully in Masquerade is to bring about the idea that Coward was a very complex man. There was a lot more to him, both as a playwright and as a popular figure, than has previously been suggested. Well, Oliver, Alexander mentioned there the idea of the private man of, of Noel Coward. And one of the things that Philip mentions in his review is that early biographies couldn't 
talk about, couldn't write about his sexuality because of the, the era in which the, these biographies were written. Uh, how did you cover this aspect of his personal life? With some difficulty, simply because of lack of surviving information, I have to be honest. I mean, not until Coward was 25 can we actually demonstrate that he had a sexual affair with another man. Which, you know, the supposedly precocious playwright is actually quite a late starter, it seems, in, uh, in matters of the heart. Th th there's been one very fine biography in the past that was able to, to talk about Coward, as a gay man, um, that great writer Philip Hoare, whose book came out in 1995. And it's just astonishing to think in those intervening 30 years just how much attitudes have changed. You can read that book and it reads now, I hope Philip would agree with me, as the, the writing of a gay man when Section 28 was still in force and it, it has a certain slant to placing Coward as a, as a, a pioneer of sexual liberation, which he was. And now, 30 years on, of course, Coward's sexuality is is intrinsic to who he was. It's intrinsic to his sense of performance, which is also a means of hiding his true self at a time when sexuality was illegal, which it was until the last uh, six years of his life. But I think now, in a way, one can be much more matter of fact about it. It's both entirely intrinsic and yet incidental. It's, uh, what Coward writes about is not, in a way, the experience of being a gay man, although that is vital to what he has to say. But what he writes about are affairs of the heart. He writes about love very painfully, but very truthfully. And I don't actually subscribe to the view that all his plays are gay plays in disguise. I think he's a wonderful chronicler of women and their fight for liberation through the 20th century. I just think he writes about about love, so in a way, you don't have to do much different to, to, you, to had you been writing about um, a straight playwright. He, he just writes truthfully about human relationships, and, and very well too. I was truly surprised by, by how well he did that. Alexander, Oliver mentioned earlier that Coward was, was quite radical for his time. Can you take us through some of the conventions in theatre at the start of his career and, and how Coward's work contrasted or perhaps even challenged them? Well, I think for what Coward was doing in the 1920s with plays like Ever Vortex was that he was taking on conventional ideas of things like sexuality and indeed theatrical performance. And then, I mean, he wasn't exactly an experimental playwright at the beginning of his career, but what he certainly did was he certainly took the convention of a well-made Edwardian play, the kind of the George Bernard Shaw wit, and he, he took it in another direction. I think but what strikes us so much today when you watch Coward plays if they're revived is that there's a real energy and it's a real fizz. And he partly got this from the time he spent in New York, where he was obviously going out and seeing the Broadway plays and getting to know the humorists, people like Dorothy Parker. And you can really see there's an energy and there's a wit and there's, there's almost like a jazz-like syncopation to Coward's dialogue, which I think, if you think go back a hundred years, it must have been absolutely revelatory to people in Britain who are quite used to much quieter, much more stage plays. And then to have this dynamo just leaping off the stage is an extraordinary thing. So, yes, I, mean, I think we can definitely see Coward as an innovator, but I think the mistake that we make is ever to think of him purely as this conservative figure who was died in the wall. I think, in fact, the important thing, as Oliver's book so intelligently points out, is that Coward was this man who was very much ahead of his time. May, may I add to that? Uh, I was thinking also, uh, when I was writing the book, one thing that really struck me is that this journey to Wolfenden and the legalisation of sexuality, which almost ties in with the abolition of censorship on the West End stage, is not actually this smooth, upward, 
gradient to liberation. It's much more of a zigzag than I had realized. So the decade of the 20s and to some lesser extent the 30s is actually a period of, to some degree, great sexual liberation on the London stage. And it is just astonishing looking at the plays that Coward wrote only 20 years on from Pinero and Wilde and, and the great Victorian playwrights, 30 years, are so open in what they are able to say as far as throwing out the rejection, uh, excuse me, rejecting Victorian convention is concerned. There are gay relationships pretty openly expressed. There is a menage a trois in Design for Living in 1932. There are divorcees reuniting when divorce was still hugely scandalous, six years before the abdication crisis, as covered by Alex's new book <laughs> and all the rest of it. Um, and he is permitted to be so open, which later in his career in the 1950s, it was much harder to be. So it's a great shock to audiences of the 20s in the West End mm -hmm. to see pretty open homosexuality on the London stage. Something I must just say about Oliver's book, and this is entirely true, is that Coward was a very funny man, that the book is funny in and of its own terms, which is an exceptionally hard thing to do when you're writing about somebody funny yourself, because most funny people do not have amusing books written about them. <laughs> yeah. but, but your book, I mean, yeah. there's frequently laugh out loud lines. Oh, good. Lines. I was so it's quite a high-risk thing to do, as you say. <laughs> Precisely. Well, yeah. you know, clowns, I mean, clown is the wrong word for Coward in some ways, but they are famously very unhappy. Yeah. And Coward, I, I really think, is a very unhappy man. Elaine Stritch, the actress, said he was the saddest man that she'd ever met. So I was very worried writing the book that, you know, it wouldn't be funny. And there is a terrible danger that you just try and be Coward-esque when you're writing about mm. Coward and you're forever trying to do one-liners. So I'm pleased it is funny, I should say. I did, I did want it to be funny. Maybe but that's just a... my warped sense of humour. No, no, I'm, very, I'm, I'm thrilled. But you do... It is a knife edge, as with all great comedic playwrights. You, you, I, I read a lot of Coward thinking, as with the best comedians, that he could have been a great tragedian had he wanted to be. Mm. Because what, what, one of my favourite stories in the book is when you say he was offered the role of Hamlet in, in, on Broadway. Yes. I would have loved to have seen the Noel Coward Hamlet. It, I mean, Hamlet's quite funny. You could, just, you know, think of the absurdist humour when he's talking to Polonius yeah, and seeing yeah. camels in the sky and so on. He would have done that very yeah. beautifully. And I mean, what is the vortex but a play about an unhappy, possibly homosexual young man embroiled in a very Freudian relationship with his over-sexualised mother? Talk about Gertrude and Hamlet. I think seeing Coward's Hamlet would have been wonderful, just as I think. You know, people always said Ronnie Barker ought to have played King Lear. And one could see... Coward at the end of his career, had he not disdained such a sort of a proposal, playing Lear rather beautifully, I think. In, he said, in, we have the Italian job. You will, yeah, the Italian job. <laughs> Mr Bridger or King Lear, take your pick. Just, just finally then, a question I'd like to ask both of you, is that you've, you've mentioned Noel Coward's famous one-liners, and I wonder if either of you have a particular favourite Coward witticism that you'd like to share with our listeners. Well, just in, in case we've got the same one, I'll let you go first, Ali. Women should be struck regularly, like gongs. We, we, <laughs> that's not going to be cancelled forever. Yeah. Well, we have to add a disclaimer that that's the view of one of his characters rather than him, which given that, I keep wanting to say, given that line was cut from a recent <laughs> revival of Private Lives, it's, you know, not the same thing. I rather like the one where he went to see Vivian Lee playing Lavinia in Titus Andronicus, who, as you know, um, loses both of her hands, ha has them cut off and writes the name of her accusers in the sand with a, with a staff. And on the night Coward went to see it, she dropped the staff and he went round to the dressing room to see her afterwards and said, hello, butter stumps. 
<laughs> which I do like. It was, I, I read the whole audiobook of my book in a studio, and that was the one line that got a laugh from the sound engineer on the other side of the glass. So it's tried and tested. Excellent. Well, Oliver and Alexander, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. I'm Laura Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week. <laughs>